Welcome to another episode of National Energy Talk. I'm your host, Mark Stansbury. And we have with us today a U.S. ambassador, former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, Robert Jordan. Welcome, Robert. Good to be with you, Mark. Well, Ambassador, uh, we go back uh, several years. In fact, uh, you chaired the International Energy Policy Conference uh, back in 2006, September 18, 2006 in Dallas. Our good friend Edward Blessing introduced us. He served as host chairman, and we had a great uh, event. And uh, you keep uh, adding uh, to uh, to your uh, bio uh, as 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 uh, through the years. In fact, I'd like to go back to uh, really city of Wichita, uh, from Wichita to uh, from Wichita you go to. Uh, to Tulsa, I guess, uh, somewhere along the way, Peru, in between that time before Tulsa, or maybe during that time, uh, Duke University, University of Oklahoma Law School, on and on, uh, up to becoming ambassador. Let's, let's start in the early days. Uh, and if you will, tell your, your history, uh, your journey to, to get to where you are today. Sure. Well, uh, I was born in Wichita, as you say. Uh, my dad was in the Navy during World War II had been at uh, Normandy and then uh, was transferred to Hawaii to prepare to invade Japan. And uh, so my mother went up to her parents' home in Wichita uh, so that I could be born there uh, near her parents. Uh, Dad came back, of course, uh, uh, from Hawaii and we lived in Tulsa for a while, but he was in the international uh, oil field supply business. And so uh, he got a job in Peru in a small oil camp uh, about 400 miles north of Lima. And we lived on the coast there for two years. I went to kindergarten there, spoke Spanish as my everyday language. Uh, we came back to, uh, to Tulsa after that. And uh, he then worked in Tulsa for a while, uh, then worked in Libya, uh, worked in New York. Uh, and uh, ultimately, when I was in college in Hong Kong. So uh, we had a long history of international oil uh, exposure uh, during that period. Uh, I uh, went to high school in Tulsa and then went off to Duke. Uh, I had a great time there, uh, very much enjoyed it. Then I joined the Navy uh, during the Vietnam conflict and was stationed in Washington, D.C. with what's called the Naval Security Group, which was a subsidiary of the National Security Agency. Uh, they were basically involved in cryptology, code breaking, uh, intercepts, and things of that nature. Uh, after that, went back to Oklahoma on the GI Bill, went to law school, and then came down to the big city of Dallas to start my career. Now, you work with a law firm, and was it the, the law firm you began with is the same one today? Uh, tell us about your history as, a, as an attorney. Sure. I joined a firm uh, initially in Dallas in 1974 called uh, Rain Harrell, Emory, Young & Doak, which was a boutique uh, corporate and litigation firm. Uh, I stayed there 11 years, was a partner, and then uh, one of my friends who had gone to Baker Botts in Houston uh, said, hey, Bob, we're... Uh, we're about to open a, an office in Dallas. Do you know anybody who might like to join us? And this was a great opportunity for me. So I joined to start the, uh, the Baker Botts Dallas office in 1985 and stayed there 
uh, until my time as ambassador. And then I returned to the law firm uh, after my time was up uh, in government. What did you know, uh, first of all, uh, not only being an attorney, that you wanted a desire to be an attorney, but also the international part? Uh, did that interest you, I guess, you being back you're talking about Peru and other countries your dad was involved with as well? Was that an interest then, or when did it really uh, become a strong interest to you, both uh, internationally and also the, being an attorney? International had always uh, appealed to me. Our, our dinner table conversation was always about things going on in the world, uh, reminiscences of our time in Peru and then our time in Hong Kong. Um, we uh, uh, really sort of looked at the world. I can also recall as a, as a child uh, watching in black and white TV uh, some of the proceedings at the United Nations. I was tremendously impressed with our ambassador, Henry Cabot Lodge. Uh, it really was kind of magical to me to see what these people were doing. And so I've, I guess I've always admired diplomats. Uh, and, uh, and that had a lot to do, I think, with, with what happened later in life. Being a lawyer, on the other hand, was uh, in, in some ways accidental. My favorite course in college uh, was constitutional law. And uh, so that, I think, colored a lot of what I wanted to do. Uh, I became very interested uh, during law school in antitrust law. And so when I came to Dallas, I really wanted to practice inter uh, antitrust law and focused on that for a number of years, as well as securities uh, litigation. Uh, there wasn't a lot of international work going on uh, at that time. And so I really didn't practice in the international arena. Uh, until after I had been ambassador. Along the way, you met uh, George W. Bush. Can you tell us about uh, meeting him and, and how you got involved to the point of being appointed as uh, ambassador? Yeah, yeah, in the early 90s, my law firm uh, did a lot of legal work for the Harvard Endowment. And one of the companies that the endowment invested in was a company called Harkin Energy in Grand Prairie. Uh, and uh, so I got a call that the Securities and Exchange Commission had launched an investigation into insider, potential insider stock trading uh, at Hark, in Harkin stock. And it turned out the trade they were looking at was a sale by a guy named George W. Bush uh, of about $800,000 of Harkin stock. After that sale, uh, Harkin uh, announced some very negative quarterly earnings. So the question was, uh, did, did uh, George Bush, who was on the board of Harkin, know that this uh, write down and this loss was, was coming and uh, sell with that inside information? It took us two years to convince the SEC that he had done nothing wrong. He did not know uh, what was going to be reported uh, later. And the post-closing adjustments at the end of the quarter uh, were in the normal course of business in most cases and were write-downs that management decided to take uh, and, and nothing that, uh, that Bush could have known uh, ahead of time. So they closed the case. Uh, Bush thought that I was a genius to get the case dismissed, even though he clearly had done nothing wrong. And this was at the time then when he was starting to consider running for governor. And um, I advised him on judicial appointments, uh, worked with him while he was governor, 
Uh, we would occasionally spend the night with the Bushes at the governor's mansion and uh, spend a lot of time together. So uh, when he became president, uh, we started talking about what I might do in his administration. This long-term relationship you had with him uh, led eventually to uh, being appointed. Um, when when did this be? When was that addressed? And and uh, and why why Saudi Arabia? Well, we started talking about potential jobs in the uh, late winter, early spring of 2001. Um, he said, look, don't wait for me to uh, suggest something for you. You tell me what you'd like to do, and I'll tell you if I've got an opening. So I said, well, I've been your lawyer. Uh, White House counsel would be something appropriate. And he said, yeah, you'd be great, but I've already picked Alberto Gonzalez for that. So what else? Uh, <laughs> and he then said that uh, the number two and number three spots in the Justice Department were open and the new attorney general, John Ashcroft, uh, might be someone I should go talk to. So I went to see Ashcroft. Uh, we did not exactly hit it off. Uh, he clearly wanted his own people and not a Bush guy there. And secondly, he needed somebody who had criminal law experience, which I did not have. So that was fine. And I just assumed at that point that I'd stay with my law firm. I had a great practice and that would be over. Then really out of the blue, about a month later, uh, the White House called and said the president would like you to be his ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Um, I thought this was about the worst idea I had ever heard. Um, I had a fairly negative, stereotypical view of, of Saudi Arabia a hot, desolate place where no one has any rights, no religious freedom, no rights for women, uh, and a very stern, uh, unwelcoming culture, including uh, episodes of terrorist activity. So I said, let me think about this for a while. <laughs> and uh, finally, I you know, was clearly uh, at a crossroads, and one of my sons was home from college on spring break, so this had to have been probably March or April. And he said, you know, Dad, when your friend, the president of the United States, asks you to serve your country, you can't say no, can you? And I said, no, that's exactly right. I have decided I'm going to do this. And so during the spring and summer of 01, uh, I was uh, going to Washington quite a bit, being briefed. Uh, they had still not formally uh, announced my nomination uh, because, of course, security clearances and all of that kind of thing take a long time. But so that, that, throughout the summer, that's what I was doing. I had never been to Saudi Arabia. Uh, as I say, I didn't much want to go. But again, when, when the president asked you to serve your country, you can't say no. September 11, 2001. Um, you know, I was going to ask, you know, how do you prepare for something like that? You don't. It's, 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 uh, it, it hit us all. But in your position, it really hit. Uh, you wound up uh, after September 11th. Tell us. What hap happened after that, you, it, with your relationship with Saudi Arabia, you were not going to go actually over to Saudi Arabia until, I believe, after the first of the year. Instead, uh, you were, everything moved forward. And, uh, and there was someone on the Foreign Relations Committee that moved it forward as well. Yes, the, the, uh, my nomination, of course, had to be approved by the Foreign Relations Committee and then by the full Senate. And the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee at that time was a guy named Joe Biden. And uh, he had been slow playing a lot of Bush's nominations. Uh, there was a, a fair amount of partisan uh, rancor uh, at the time. Uh, but after 9-11, uh, 
thankfully, uh, he said, look, I'll, I'll give you a hearing, uh, but you've got to agree to go to your post immediately and don't stay around for consultations or language training or any of that. And so, of course, that was a, a, a no brainer. And uh, so my nomination was actually supposed to be submitted to the Senate on September the 4th. But somehow they lost the paperwork in the White House Counsel's Office, and it was then rescheduled to be submitted on September the 11th, oddly enough. And of course, it couldn't be submitted that day for obvious reasons, and then was submitted on September the 12th. Well, the press jumped all over this and said, well, now that we've been attacked by Saudis, the president's finally gotten around to nominating somebody to be ambassador. And of course, that couldn't have been more uh, incorrect. Uh, that nomination had been in the mill for several months and was just then ready to go. So at any rate, we uh, we got to Washington, had the confirmation hearing in uh, early October. Uh, I was sitting in my hotel room at the Watergate Hotel waiting to see uh, if I would be confirmed or not. I was just a little nervous since the Democrats controlled uh, the, the Senate. And I'm watching CNN and then scrolling across the bottom of the screen about nine o'clock at night, it said, Robert Jordan confirmed as ambassador to Saudi Arabia. So that's how I found out. My own government couldn't tell me I had to see it on CNN. <laughs> Unbelievable. But then I was sworn in in a couple of days by Colin Powell and off uh, on an airplane uh, to Saudi. And this uh, was three weeks after, correct? After yes. September 11th. And how were you greeted? How were, how were you, um, you know, you're just first time to Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah. so, so tell us what happened and how were, what were the relationships then with Saudi Arabia? And it's back, I guess, with our own, own country in a sense, because uh, a lot of things were moving. Yeah. It, the, uh, of course, it was pretty clear by this point that uh, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. And I was, I, I landed about eight o'clock at night in, in Riyadh. I was met by my deputy chief of mission, Margaret Scobie, who had actually arrived in Riyadh on September the 10th. So she had definitely had her hands full. Uh, she was a real veteran of the State Department, later became ambassador to Syria and then later to Egypt. And it was just really my right arm the whole time. So she met me along with my six new best friends, my Saudi bodyguards. And here are these guys in their white robes, checkered headcloths with uh, shoulder holsters bulging out from under their robes. And I'm wondering, of course, are they friend or foe? Uh, how, how earnestly will they take <laughs> their duty to be my bodyguards? And as it turned out, they were excellent. And uh, I had no doubt after a while that uh, they would do anything to protect me. But they then drove me to my residence uh, in what's called the diplomatic quarter. I met the house staff there. They fixed me a sandwich. Uh, I, was, I was pretty tired, went to bed fairly early. Then I woke up the next morning to the call to prayer about five o'clock, which was blaring through various loudspeakers around Riyadh. And uh, my day began. You have a book uh, that you, you wrote uh, about, uh, in fact, the title of it's called Desert Diplomat, and it's really following uh, for Saudi Arabia from, from the September 11th date. Um, and so some of this is probably in the book that we're talking about as well. 
for for readers. But to expand on that, um, tell us about uh, the relationship uh, with the with the, the royal family and how did you wind up? Uh, I, I know that you also had a good relationship with uh, George H. W. Bush as well, or at least uh, through the introduction. I believe if I remember right, reading that and also. Baker Botts being uh, uh, James Baker's company. You might tell about that history as well. It's kind of two questions in one, but uh, if you will, cover George H.W. and uh, James Baker. Well, I had I'd met George H.W. a few times and uh, had gone to his inauguration uh, as president, which is actually the first time I met George W. Bush uh, was, was at that event. Uh, we hosted, my law firm hosted a, a party uh, in his honor. And so uh, we got acquainted there. But I had been, had, in August, I had gone down to Crawford to meet with uh, President and Mrs. Bush uh, to have lunch with them and just sort of see what the president wanted me to do as ambassador. And we got into talking about the Saudis, of course. And he said, you know, my dad knows the Saudis a lot better than I do. Uh, in fact, Prince Bandar, the Saudi ambassador of the U.S., is at my parents' house in Kennebunkport right now on vacation with them. Um, my dad will be back next week in Houston. You need to drive down to Houston and go see him and see what he can tell you about the Saudis. And, of course, this is a wonderful opportunity. So I went down next week and uh, met with uh, Bush 41. Uh, he told me a lot about his personal relationships with the Saudis. Uh, with Prince Bandar, especially some people called called him uh, Bandar Bush because he was so close to the Bush family. <laughs> and uh, uh, so uh, we had a great meeting and I was finished. Uh, I stood up, shook his hand, thanked him. And I start walking out of his office and he says, wait, Bob, Bob, come back. And he pulls out a note card from his desk and starts writing a note. And he puts in an envelope, gives it to me and says, here, give this to Prince Bandar when you see him. Well, he didn't seal the envelope. And so when I got to my car, I figured that was permission for me to look at what he had written for Bandar. And so I opened it up and it's a note card. And he says, uh, dear Bandar, great being with you last week. Sorry, the fish weren't biting. Please be nice to this guy or Barbara will get you. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> And uh, so those were, that was my credentials with Mandar. And he just howled when he saw the, saw the note when I gave it to him. Uh, <clears throat> so then to, to add to the, the, the Jim Baker uh, element, I first met Jim Baker in 1978 when he was running for attorney general of Texas. And uh, I had uh, been asked by one of my partners who was close to him to uh, drive him to the Dallas Morning News and Dallas Times Herald editorial board so that he could make his announcement and do a, an interview with them. So we stayed in touch over the years. Uh, and when he left government uh, after Bush 41's defeat, uh, he joined our law firm. He had never been in the law firm before because we had a nepotism policy. and. Uh, his son was actually a lawyer in our Washington office at that time, his son, Jamie. And his father, when he got out of law school, uh, Jim's father was the managing partner of the firm. So he couldn't join the firm when he got out of college or out of law school. 
So this was the first time he joined the firm, which was 1993, I guess. And we continued to be uh, in pretty close touch over those years uh, when Bush was governor uh, during this time. Uh, I, I did a lot of interaction with uh, with Jim Baker and and uh, and the governor. So uh, when I uh, was nominated for uh, when Bush actually asked me to be ambassador to Saudi Arabia, I talked to to, to Jim. And I said, what do you think about this? And he said, this is a really great opportunity. This is one of the few political appointments as ambassador where you can actually do something. Uh, you get right in the middle of policy. You are really the point person for oil, for uh, a lot of other issues we have with the Saudis, security and so forth. And I think you're going to find it to be a tremendously interesting job. Well, after 9-11, I asked him again, what do you think? And he said, now it's going to be really interesting. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the one piece of advice he gave me, which I pass on to all new ambassadors, is he said, Bob, don't get clientitis. And by that, he meant don't start acting like the representative of Saudi Arabia. You're the representative of the United States. And remember whose national interest you're out there to protect. And I think sometimes ambassadors fall in love with their host countries. They start seeing the world through the eyes of the host country rather than the, the national interest of the United States. Well, building off the relationships and the introductions and so forth, there, there had to be the, uh, the opportunities to develop the relationships. And of course, uh, Saudi Arabia was uh, under attack in the sense of 15 or so uh, Saudis were involved, potentially at least, in, in the uh, September 11th event. And so how did you handle that? Were, were, they, were they accepting of that as far as the Saudis? And then I know the government, even the, in, as far as the U.S. government, you had, you had some relationships to build. I believe I read uh, Robert Mueller and, 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 uh, and George Tennant and so forth. How, how do you build off those relationships you described in the book? Well, the first thing I had to do when I arrived there was to figure out if the Saudis were friend or foe. We knew 15 of the hijackers were Saudis. Obviously, we knew there was a toxic uh, religious extremist element uh, in the country. Uh, but the question was, uh, where was the Saudi government? Did they uh, sponsor or help orchestrate uh, these attacks? Uh, were they sympathetic to them? Uh, how bad was the terrorist threat? And by the way, were there other cells that were perhaps planning additional attacks uh, on our homeland uh, from Saudi Arabia. So I went to see initially the governor of Riyadh, who was a very senior and powerful royal, uh, Prince Salman, who actually now is the king. And uh, I asked him, how could it be that 15 of these hijackers were Saudis? And he said, oh, no, no, there were no Saudis involved in these attacks. This was actually an Israeli attack. Uh, and the Israelis were behind this to drive a wedge between Saudi Arabia and the United States. Well, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So I then went to see the Minister of Interior, which is sort of like their FBI, uh, Prince Nayef. And I asked him the same question, and he gave me the same answer. It was, it was the Israelis. And it really wasn't until I met with the foreign minister, Prince Saud, uh, Saud al-Faisal, who was the son of King Faisal. Uh, who was assassinated in the, in the 1970s. 
Uh, and Saddle Faisal had gone to Princeton. Uh, he spoke better English than I did. Uh, and he fully understood that they had a terrorist problem in their midst. Uh, he clearly conceded that uh, the 15 hijackers were Saudis. Uh, and he became a great ally in efforts to root out additional terrorist activity. But again, it was a very uneven process. Much of uh, Saudi Arabia by this point was angry at, at us, the United States, uh, for blaming them for the attacks. Uh, many of our public figures, religious leaders were blaming all Muslims. Uh, thankfully, President Bush went to a mosque very early on and made it clear that our response was not against Islam, but it was against terrorist activity. And uh, But a lot of figures in our society and our government were taking a, a different view. And so the Saudis were very resentful of this. And it was sort of like they wanted to then paint themselves as the victims uh, rather than the United States. And so getting their cooperation on uh, finding more terrorists, bringing people in to interrogate, uh, sharing the information was a real struggle for us uh, at the beginning. Uh, but then you, you, you mentioned that our own government had some issues as well. The FBI and the CIA uh, didn't really cooperate with each other very well. And so I can recall the, uh, the Minister of Interior, uh, our, our CIA chief had asked me to, uh, to get some information from the Saudis. There was a list of potential witnesses or suspects that, uh, that we needed from them, and we hadn't received it. And so I went in and pounded the table and asked the uh, Minister of Interior, where in the world is this? We've been waiting on it. And he says, well, Ambassador, we gave that information to your FBI uh, three weeks ago. And so, so I was greatly embarrassed by that. I had to go back and uh, talk to the FBI and CIA about it. So finally, I went to Washington on my next trip and went to see Bob Mueller, the head of the FBI, uh, and George Tennant, the head of the CIA, and told both of them they needed to learn to work together rather than hiding information from each other, which was uh, the way they were doing business at that point. And to their credit, they actually did in many ways change the culture, particularly of the FBI. And they became much more cooperative uh, with each other and with other government, uh, U.S. government agencies. While you were there, there were attacks, if I remember right, reading. Uh, and can you describe those attacks while you were in Saudi Arabia and the impact that had? There were episodic attacks really going on from from day one, occasionally some extremists would pull up at an intersection and fire a gun at a Westerner sitting in their car parked at a, a stop at a, at a stoplight. But it, it was really uh, the evening of May 12th, 2003, that we had three simultaneous suicide attacks on Western housing compounds. Uh, I had received intelligence several weeks earlier that there might be an Al Qaeda attack within Saudi Arabia. They had never really attacked uh, previous to that, I think because they were getting a lot of money from various private sources in the kingdom. But uh, we were worried enough that I sent letters, actually I sent three letters uh, to the Saudi government asking them to increase the security around these housing compounds. And they had ignored me. And so uh, the night of May 12th, 
these three housing compounds were attacked. Many people were killed. I think we we had many Americans wounded and nine or 10 of them were killed. Uh, it was absolutely a nightmare. And uh, I was furious uh, because they had ignored my request for additional security. So the next morning, I met with uh, Crown Prince Abdullah, who was running the kingdom, uh, along with Colin Powell, who had arrived uh, on a previously scheduled uh, visit. And we went in to see the Crown Prince. And uh, he turned to me first and he said, Ambassador, I owe you an apology. Uh, you had asked for this additional security, and I was the one who didn't think you needed it. And I want you to know that we will now uh, go after these terrorists. We will hunt them down. Uh, we will capture or kill them. And we will also treat just as harshly anyone who has given them aid or comfort, or even anyone who's tried to rationalize what they have done. So this was an, an enormous embarrassment to the kingdom. Uh, and I think it was a turning point in their acceptance of their role in. Uh, the fight against terror. And from that day on, they were actually a much stronger partner in rooting out uh, Al-Qaeda cells, uh, terrorist activity, and extremism generally. And they even had billboards on the, on the highways saying, say no to terrorism. It's so interesting uh, as far as all, I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, it's un unbelievable to be spending hours with you, <laughs> Ambassador, because uh, I, I, I'm going to encourage the, the listeners, get the book. Uh, desert uh, Dipl diplomat, desert diplomat, because uh, Robert Jordan, Ambassador Robert Jordan, has so much to cover uh, that I can't cover it all <laughs> today. But it gives you an idea of the challenges that the ambassador had, that the country had, uh, and for global uh, issues and and, uh, and and actually results uh, through the years. One thing that's on the mind, of course, national energy talk is energy and. Uh, your relationship uh, with energy has, has been uh, since you probably stepped foot uh, in Saudi Arabia to, to this day. In fact, if I remember right, you actually went back uh, to Rihad uh, and, and had a, a, an office there with Baker Botch years later um, from the conference, I think it was 2006, I believe it was around 2010 or so or later that you uh, actually set up an office. And what's your relationship when it comes to energy to this day? And, and I'm going to ask one other question to be part of that is, where do you see this going And uh, as far as OPEC and relationships moving forward? Well, when I first went to Riyadh in 2001, uh, President Bush asked me to try to get the Saudis to agree to keep uh, the price of oil around $23 a barrel. Uh, they were seeking 28 I think we ended up at about 25 most of the time there. Um, if you fast forward, uh, a lot of what I did with Baker Botts uh, uh, in the Middle East beginning in 2010 uh, was uh, energy related. Uh, we worked with a number of American uh, oil companies uh, at that time. Uh, and uh, of course, we saw a huge spike in the price of oil uh, in the 2007, 8, 10 period. Uh, up at well over $100 a barrel. Uh, and then it, of course, receded. So we've, we've, seen, we've seen the market go up and down. Uh, it, it, it is cyclical in many ways. Uh, and we're now seeing, uh, I think, a phenomenon where OPEC is not nearly as powerful as it used to be. 
And the Saudis have a bit less of a command of OPEC uh, because of that, and frankly, because of American production. And uh, the, the increase in production worldwide has, has really been, to a great degree, a phenomenon of American ingenuity. Uh, the Saudis tried to uh, kill the market uh, for a while uh, by flooding the market with oil, thinking that they could drive our uh, shale producers out of business. Uh, the shale producers in America showed their ingenuity, their flexibility, and their ability to become more efficient uh, and were able to compete pretty successfully uh, during that period. So we've seen OPEC go up and down. We saw production cuts uh, a year or so ago, and they are now trying to come out of those production cuts. Uh, the Saudis have increased their production, uh, certainly in July, by about half a million barrels a day. So they're up to almost 10 million barrels now, uh, which is in many ways a good thing for uh, the worldwide economy. Um, America is nominally energy independent, but that's a little bit misleading since we also need to import various varieties of crude oil to fit the refinery capacity that we have here in the United States. We need some heavy sour uh, production, which we don't domestically produce as much. Uh, for some of these refineries. And so we're still, uh, still importing from Canada uh, and Saudi and other parts, parts of the Middle East, uh, but it's not nearly what it used to be. And I think we're on track to be even more independent. Uh, we have some regulatory problems going on right now that are inhibiting uh, our pipelines and uh, some of our infrastructure. But overall, I think the American uh, energy industry is robust, and uh, I feel pretty good about it. You have a strong relationship uh, with SMU uh, in the Middle East, uh, as far as uh, instructions that you, as far as, a, I believe, an adjunct, or can you tell us about your relationship with, with the university? Yeah, when I came back from Saudi, the, uh, the John Tower Center for Public Policy at SMU asked me to join their board. And then about a year later, they asked me to start teaching a course there on the Middle East. And they named me what's called diplomat in residence, which basically means I have an office and uh, am available to uh, do guest lectures and things of that nature as well. But I, I created a course called Current Problems in Middle East Politics, and it was basically a discussion course. And so we would have, I limited the enrollment to 20 students. And they would come in uh, once a week for three hours and basically report to me on what was in the news that week about the Middle East, why they thought it was important, and then how that would affect American policy. So we had some really great debates and discussions. The students were very bright. Uh, and then I had to interrupt teaching when I moved to Dubai in 2010 uh, with my law firm. I came back in 2014 and then resumed the course. And it was really amazing to me how the quality of the students had improved over that four-year period. SMU has invested heavily in, in uh, scholarships and recruitment of, of great students and in faculty. And so each year I've noticed that the SMU students and faculty get stronger and stronger. But I had a, a really wonderful time teaching the course. And then we had to interrupt because of COVID. Uh, I did a, a Zoom class in 2020, 
and we'll now see uh, what we can do in the future. But I've got a couple of guest lectures planned for uh, this semester uh, in, at, at SMU and still have my office there. So uh, it's really a wonderful relationship and it's just a terrific university. What's next for you, Ambassador? Well, that's a great question. Um, I am uh, traveling a good bit. I have been. Uh, COVID has slowed that down a bit. Uh, I, I de debate over whether to write another book. Uh, the problem I had with the first book, Desert Diplomat, was it had to be cleared by the State Department and the CIA. And uh, it took them five months to clear the book. And the only changes they made were to delete every reference to the CIA. So uh, I'm not sure I want to go through that process uh, again. I'm out on the lecture circuit. I, uh, I do speeches. I uh, spent several years uh, giving speeches on cruise ships and had a wonderful time doing that. Uh, again, with COVID, that is sort of on the uh, back burner uh, at the moment. But there's just a lot that I want to do. I'm heavily involved in the Middle East Institute uh, based in Washington, D.C. I'm vice chair of that board. Uh, we are having a big gala uh, coming up in October. Uh, I'm heavily involved in the World Affairs Council in Dallas uh, and a number of other charitable organizations. So that, I think, is taking up a tremendous amount of my time right now. And uh, it's really going great. Well, when you run across our, our good friends, Ed Blessing, Edward Blessing, and Cindy Byrne, please pass hello from, from the Stansbury family. Uh, you've been listening to Ambassador Jordan. Uh, please get his book, Desert Diplomat. And uh, we look forward to seeing great things ahead for you, Ambassador. want to keep up with you. And uh, please uh, do that by, again, Desert Diplomat. And uh, I appreciate your time. What a great experience, the pathway, the journeys that you've had. And uh, we hope to have you again sometime on our, on our podcast. Uh, again, tune in to National Energy Talk and uh, www.markstansbury.com for future podcasts, blogs, columns to keep up to date. Thank you for listening.